3: This is Forum. I'm Marisa Lagos, here today for Mina Kim. How do we get to the point where a 50-year-old Supreme Court opinion may now be overturned? We'll look at the decades-long organized political efforts that enabled this potential result and talk about what American politics and society might look like in a post-Roe world. All that ahead on Forum. Join us. This is Forum. I'm Marisa Lagos here today for Mina Kim. The leaked draft Supreme Court opinion overturning Roe v. Wade has sent shockwaves across the country, particularly for those who assume their 50-year-old constitutional right to abortion was safe. But court watchers have long predicted this outcome, brought on by a decades-long effort of Christian fundamentalists and other far-right actors to remake the Republican Party. We're going to talk about the political forces that brought us to this moment and the other core privacy rights from contraception to gay marriage that may be imperiled. Joining me to explore how we got here and where we're going in this post-Roe world are Jay Michelson, journalist and contributing writer at The Daily Beast and New York Magazine. His most recent piece for The Daily Beast is Gay Marriage is Next on the SCOTUS Chopping Block, and he also has an article in Rolling Stone Magazine called Roe v. Wade is on life support. How the F did we get here? Michaelson is also a rabbi. Jay, thank you so much for joining us. Thank
4: you. Pleasure to be here.
3: We also have with us Aziza Ahmed, a professor of law at UC Irvine Law School. Her forthcoming book from Cambridge University Press is Risk and Resistance, How Feminists Change the Law and Science of AIDS. Aziza, very happy you could join us.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
3: So, as I said, I, I was hoping we could use the first uh, half of the show or so to, to look back and, and kind of talk about how we ended up uh, in the situation that um, we believe we'll be facing uh, if this uh, you know, draft opinion is codified uh, in the coming weeks. So, Jay, let's go back to the beginning of the nation, because Justice Al- Alito seems to want to <laughs> Um what was the state of abortion in the 1800s as this nation was, you know, sort of in its nascent stages?
4: So it's that's the perfect place to start. So part of the what's f- incredibly frustrating, obviously, there's so much that's unjust and difficult in Justice Alito's draft. But some of what's so frustrating is his selective use of history. So he points out, oh well, abortion's not mentioned in the con- in the Constitution, and it's not here, and it's not there. It was really nowhere in american law abortion was just not considered something that was going to be regulated by the government uh really until the middle of the 19th century uh, and to the late 19th century and that was under pressure of the medical establishment which for sort of fundamentally i'd say sexist reasons wanted to sort of take power for midwives and others who were taking care of women's health what was called women's health care so it and, wasn't a
3: moral objection at that point
4: there were, you know, there was church teaching, uh, but church, but really only the Catholic Church uh, held that life in, began in began at contraception. In fact, as late as the nineteen sixties and nineteen seventies, even when Roe versus Wade was decided. A majority of conservative Protestants and conservative evangelicals in the United States believed that life began at birth. And we'll get, we're going great- to get to that. So, okay. yeah. So, <laughs> anyway, so right, 19th century, yes, that was going on. Abortion is as old as sex, but this was not something that was widely regulated, especially not before what was called quickening, which is a term we don't really use today, but it was about when the mother could feel uh, the fetus moving within the womb, which is about 16, mo- 16 weeks. Mm. And th- before that time, this was just not considered something that the government was going to regulate at all.
3: And Aziza, I mean, a lot of this, what's in this opinion is sort of um, looking back at the history and making, you know, contextualizing it. But we know that history is written, especially in this country, often by men and and white men specifically. So to Jay's point, like, how do you sort of view uh, the historical context of, of the early, you know, U.S. and how we're talking about it now?
2: Yeah, I think, you know, what's always been clear, and this is something that Jay is alluding to as well, is that even as, um, you know, people have always had really mixed and contested ideas about, you know, when life begins and how we should think about um, childbirth and how we should think about the embryo, how we should think about pregnancy. I think what's most shocking about the opinion and its historical account is that it completely writes out the experiences of women and people who have been pregnant and need abortions. It's almost as though their lives, their realities, their existences don't matter to how we understand American history. All that matters is the you know, uh, deep thoughts of famous jurists, some of whom have extremely problematic histories themselves.
3: Yeah. Do you want to give any specific examples or anything that really struck you in this draft opinion um, in that frame?
2: Well, yeah, sure. I mean, we just, you know, I think the main the main thing for me was that, um, you know, the at the time when these jurists were writing, we know we knew very little um, about pregnancy um, and about you know the science of the embryo or the science of the fetus. These were really just the ruminations of men who were empowered to essentially think through their ideas about abortion and how people's bodies ought to be governed. Um, They weren't feminists. You know, they weren't anyone who had inclinations towards women's rights or the inclusivity of um women. Um and so, you know, what it's there's a certain absurdity to the fact that the Supreme Court went back to this period, you know, the sixteenth century, the seventeenth century, the eighteenth century, to try to understand how to deal with an issue to that is central to women's health, mental health, and economic survival today.
3: Yeah. Um and Jay Michelson, I mean can you bring us forward from the 1800s to the 1960s? Um, what what kind of political, if any, debate was there around this issue from you know, then up to the time where I know you've written about it being legalized in various states through a coalition we probably wouldn't recognize these days?
4: That's right. Although I have to, I can't, I can't miss out on the opportunity to just bash one of the seventeenth century it. sources that Justice, because I, I completely agree with uh, with everything that Professor Ahmed just said, and even within these sort of patriarchal sources that are so impartial and where women's voices and existences do not appear, the ones that Justice Lito chose. Were outrageous. So one of the one of the sources that he cited approvingly is also said, said in the same uh, same set of documents that a husband cannot be guilty of rape because a wife is his property. This is the same the same individual. Sentenced women to death for witchcraft. These are the supporting sources that Justice Justice Alito is using, uh, and as as sort of setting forth, you know, the the wonderful tradition of Anglo American law on on reproductive rights. Yeah. So even within the entire system, which is itself shot through, you know, with with uh, misogyny and with exclusion and with all the problems that we know about. He even chose the worst ones, some of the worst ones within that system. Well, Anyways, let me sorry. ask you. No, no, no. I, 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 this is
3: a, it's a good tangent. And I'm curious, Jay, like, is this common? I mean, is, is it unusual for a justice to go back that far and to cite the types of sources you're talking about? Um, like, does that strike you as sort of within the normal bounds of jurisprudence these days?
4: These days, it is rather common. And the reason is that, at least on paper, Justice Alito and, and other conservative justices subscribe to a theory called originalism, which is to understand what the Constitution says, we have to try to think, I would say imagine, but they would say research, you know, what the writers, what the founders were were thinking when they wrote these words, you know, as, you know, just not someone who just went to law school, but also grads, like, the, you that's a preposterous activity. But that's what originalists believe, is that we can get to the original meanings of words like liberty, uh, or the rights retained by the people, these sort of very broad words that that are used in the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. And, you know, until the 1970s or so, the predominant view was the Constitution used these broad words for a reason, right the idea was that you would interpret these norms differently across history and that's why there are these broad basic norms about liberty and about you know the word privacy isn't there but the concept of a personal zone that the government doesn't enter into um, but when originalism kind of came on the scene as an instrument of what I would say hard, right conservative interpretations of the Constitution, that's when we started seeing these sites to very obscure sources, you know, from the 17th and 18th centuries, because supposedly those sources shed light on what the founders meant when they used words like liberty.
3: Yeah. Okay. So before we get to Ro, um, Jay, tell us, you know, quickly, just like where were things in the 60s when... This coalition you write about that was led by feminists but also included religious leaders was helping legalize this in some states.
4: Yeah, there's, you know, there's a conception today that this is sort of a religion versus secular uh, fight, right? And that religion, because of sort of certain right-wing elements within the Christian fundamentalist community have tried to monopolize and sometimes successfully monopolize public discourse, it's being put as like, this is like God versus women. A few years ago, I wrote a book called God versus Gay, because the same the same false uh, polarity is used in the LGBTQ issues. Um, but that's not actually true. Uh, some of the leading activists for legalizing abortion Abortion in the 1960s were liberal clergy. Because what happened in the roughly hundred years uh, from around 1870 to 1970 is that of course abortions continued to be performed, right? right? They were just being performed uh, outside the law by, you know, in unqualified by unqualified people, by shady people. Women were being harmed. Women were tragically were being killed. I mean, this is not, it didn't stop criminalizing abortion doesn't stop abortion. It just stops safe abortion. Uh, And so this became seen as a sort of human rights issue and a religious issue by progressives. So it was a coalition of feminists and of liberal clergy in the 60s. And it became understood at that time that this was not just sort of a health and safety issue, but one about fundamental bodily autonomy, that this was about the humanity of women and being empowered to make choices about their own bodies, which it sounds like, a cliche to talk about now, and yet that's what's being contested in this draft opinion.
3: Yeah, we just have a, a couple minutes till the break, um, and I want to come back uh, to Professor Ahmed after that to talk about Roe. But uh, just quickly, Jay, can you just tell us like what was public opinion like leading in the decade leading up to to this court case? Was this an issue that folks were thinking about in the political sphere or or, or just generally?
4: Outside of the Catholic Church, this was not a major issue. As I mentioned before, a majority of evangelicals, conservative evangelicals, uh, did not think that abortion was ending a human life. They did not see this as a, as a religious imperative, let alone a political imperative. The issue was controver- the decision was controversial when it came down, but really only among uh, a small subset of the population. And hopefully after the break, we can talk about how that changed. But it, it may be a head-scratcher, but it is the case that conservative evangelicals were not focused in any way on abortion. And when church leaders wrote on the issue, they wrote uh, saying that life begins at birth, not conception.
3: Wow. All right. We're going to keep talking after a short break about the political history of how we got to this point with Roe v. Wade, that 50-year-old Supreme Court case uh, that, based on a leaked draft opinion, looks like it's about to be overturned. And we're going to talk about what the world could look like post-Roe. We want to know from our audience, what rights are you afraid might be lost if Roe is overturned? How are you responding to the court's leaked opinion? And what questions do you have about what's behind us and what's ahead? You can give us a call at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786 866 or you can get in touch on Twitter and Facebook we're at KQED Forum you can also email your questions to forum at kqed.org I'm Marisa Lagos and Fermina Kim we'll be right back Welcome back to Forum. I'm Marisa Lagos. And today for Mina Kim, and we are talking about that draft-leaked Supreme Court decision, which, uh, if it stands, would overturn the 1973 uh, landmark case Roe v. Wade. Um, I'm here with Jay Michelson, journalist and contributing writer at The Daily Beast and New York Magazine, and Aziza Ahmed, professor of law at UC Irvine Law School. And Aziza, can you talk us through how that landmark case came before the court in 1973. What were the basic outlines of it?
2: Right. Yeah. So basically, Roe was a case um, uh, uh, brought by um, several people. Um, and it, there's a companion case to Doe versus Bolton. Um, and the case cha- challenged uh, the criminal laws in the state of Texas. Um, and, and basically, the ability of physicians to actually uh, provide form abortions um, and not have a criminal liability. Um, The Roe case became very important because it essentially then decriminalized abortion. Um, And it became, it was a historic moment in US history. Um, It was a high point for the feminist movement. And it was also an important period in which the anti-choice activists began to organize. Um, What Roe said um, is that basically uh, within the scope of the right to privacy, which can be found in different places in the constitution, but most importantly connected to the idea of liberty, um, women have the right to choose an abortion. Um, And the state has at different points in pregnancy, uh, essentially different interests in the ability to either stop abortion altogether or to um, uh, regulate abortion. Um, Now, this changed, of course, once we got to the 90s and we got to the Casey decision, which changed the rule a bit.
3: Yeah. So and I want to get there. But, Jay, before we go there, um, talk about the line and the politics that emerges related to Roe v. Wade and school desegregation. Like, how do those things have anything to do with each other?
4: So, yeah, this can be kind of a head scratcher also for people when they learn about it. I Just for what I'm going to say, I'll also point to the work of historian Randall Balmer, who uh, who really traces this in, in detail. So again, it will surprise people to hear that abortion was just not that galvanizing an issue uh, for religious conservatives in the 1970s. Um, In fact, and in the 1960s, the predominant predominant attitude was really to stay out of politics because politics was messy and and we just want to keep pure and keep free of of all of that mess. That changed with school desegregation in the 60s and 70s. As soon as desegregation really happened, most white conservative Christians pulled their kids out of public schools and into what were later called segregation academies. These were religious schools that only admitted white students. So basically, if they couldn't have whites-only schools in the public school system, they created their own system of white schools. That was later found to be against the Civil Rights Act, uh, maybe obviously, uh, but it was not obvious that that would actually apply to religious schools. Yeah. Uh, that did the, the law was applied to religious schools, and that is when there was a, co- a sort of a coalescing of what we now know as the Christian right in the mid-1970s. And this includes Jerry
3: Falwell, right?
4: That's right. So Jerry Falwell, Paul Weyrich, and others uh, began kind of revising the notion that evangelicals should stay out of politics, because politics was getting in the way of their having all-white learning environments for their children. And that was what brought the Christian right together. Uh, At the same time, for a number of reasons, that was not seen as an issue that could be the kind of public face of the movement, partly because public opinion had shifted in the intervening 10 years and saying we're an officially racist movement and we want to have racist schools forever. So there was, there are the, we have the documents. I mean, this isn't like a matter of interpretation. (laughs) The receipts are there. We have the receipts, (laughs) exactly. Uh, And it's not, you know, so that we have the minutes of the meetings, we have direct interviews. Uh, Abortion was seen as an, as an, uh, an issue that could unite the different as- the different sides of what now became the Christian right, in particular Catholics and Protestants. There was actually a fair amount of anti-Catholic prejudice among Protestant communities throughout the 20th century. And actually uh, this view on life begins at-, at conception was one of the things that Protestants sort of made fun of about Catholics. Like this is a ridiculous idea, it's not in the Bible, how could anyone believe this? That all changed roughly between 1975 and 1985. Uh, the election of Ronald Reagan with the support of the moral majority and the Christian right showed that when conservative white Christian conservatives got involved in politics, they could change the results of a presidential election. And within a very short time, uh, opposition to abortion became the absolute litmus test for any almost any Republican politician uh, and certainly sort of a, a kind of article of faith among uh, conservative white evangelicals.
3: Yeah. And so we see this really um. As these flourished through the '80s, you know Ronald Reagan, who actually ironically signed uh, one of California's legalizing abortion laws, became president in part backed by this coalition. Bring us up though to 1992 and that Casey decision you mentioned before. How did that interact with Roe? And I know you've written, you know, talked about how it's actually not a very progressive decision, even though it's all often held up as sort of this uh, partner to the Roe v. Wade decision.
2: Right. Yeah. So Casey uh, had to do with um, a law in Pennsylvania that was passed that essentially introduced a bunch of barriers to abortion, including a waiting period and an informed consent, uh, sort of an excessive informed consent uh, uh, piece to, to accessing abortion um and the the so the the Casey decision even as we fall back on it now is an opportunity is where we hope the the justices would actually land at the time it was extremely conservative because it found all of these provisions of the Pennsylvania law that were designed to limit access to abortion to be constitutional and they did so by basically saying that um, uh they created a new rule, essentially, that said that any um, any law that has the purpose or effect of placing a substantial obstacle in the path of a woman seeking a, non- a an abortion of a non viable fetus would be unconstitutional, but they basically over the years um, courts essentially used this rule to say that no. Laws that were being introduced either had the purpose of of essentially creating this obstacle or the effect of creating this obstacle, mm. um, and so actually Casey allowed for a lot of abortion restrictions um, to essentially come into play and survive constitutional. Um, challenges. but so it's kind of uh, speaks to the moment we're in that a decision that at the time was viewed as extremely conservative and and people weren't really celebrating it. progressives weren't really celebrating at the time has now become, you know, sort of our, our hope for what where the Supreme Court will go.
3: Yeah. And sticking with you for a second, Jay had talked about, you know, this connection between originalism um, Mm -hmm. and the abortion debate and and, and this idea that, you know, it has to be part of a nation's history and traditions in order to be constitutional. Is that something that was already kind of part of the more conservative legal movement at the time? Or has that really developed in the last 20 or 30 years?
2: Well, I think Jay's history of originalism is is absolutely correct, that it's not, it wasn't something that has existed forever. It was a a particular constitutional theory that was invented. Um, And, you know, uh, conservatives largely, um, though you can see originalism and textualism, if you read the entire, you know, um, body of constitutional law, or you read a lot of it anyways, um, you know, is deployed depending on whatever the particular justice wants to achieve as a judicial outcome, um, but it is most frequently used by conservatives because of course, if you go back to the 16th and 17th century at a time when only white men and only property holding people in many cases had um, uh, rights, uh, you know, it's it serves a particular contemporary project as well. Well, I mean, um, slavery so, was legal yeah. at our nation's
3: founding, right? Like, exactly. And I, mm-hmm. I, I know we enshrined uh, ending that in the Constitution, but I mean, if you follow this logic out, it it feels like a lot of things that we kind of take for granted um, could be threatened. I mean, we have one uh, commenter, Michael, who just wants to know: Has it ever happened that a constitutionally guaranteed right has been taken away?
2: Um, yeah, I mean, I think that the entire, well, you know, it depends on how you think of a right, rights just don't work for progressives, you know, conservatives claim claim rights, progressives claim rights. And, you know, you could say that a person's right to be um, I'm trying to think of a good example here, but, you know, basic uh, Lochner, for example, which is a very famous historical case, they, you know, they basically said, um, during the Lochner era, which was at the start of the GREAT DEPRESSION THE COURTS WERE BASICALLY SAYING THAT CONTAINED WITHIN THE RIGHT TO LIBERTY IS um, THE RIGHT TO CONTRACT um, AND BY THE TIME YOU GET TO WEST COAST HOTEL THEY SAY NO I'M SORRY THAT THE RIGHT the right TO LIBERTY CAN'T BE CONCEPTUALIZED IN THIS WAY SO IN THAT SENSE A PARTICULAR IDEA OR UNDERSTANDING OF A RIGHT TO CONTRACT THAT WAS ACTUALLY HURTING WORKERS WAS TAKEN AWAY mm-hmm. um, SO YOU KNOW RIGHTS ARE ALWAYS SORT OF GRANTED AND TAKEN AWAY BY THE STATE uh, SO I, I, I THINK THAT'S PROBABLY um, a better way of thinking about rights um, because then it helps to see how we're all kind of um, grabbing for the same um, set of resources.
4: There's also been a tremendous erosion in fourth amendment rights. uh, So the rights against search and seizure uh, in the last several years, and it'll probably surprise most listeners to know that even the Miranda right that you're meant to, you know, you have a right to remain silent, we all know from TV shows, yeah. uh, the it the, the odds are very high that that it will be taken away uh, and not found to be required by the Constitution, at least if you, you know, we'll see how that case comes out in the next little while. But, uh, you know, in terms of the Fourth Amendment in general and the right to, to privacy and be free from search and seizure, uh, there have been all kinds of incursions on what were formerly uh, held. To be pretty clear, rights uh, both under the pretext of the drug war and in other contexts, and it's absolutely true. I mean, these these are something about the notion of fundamental rights. Well, it sounds fundamental and foundational, but these are really precarious. And at, you know, the the network of rights around the right to abortion uh, is all imperiled by the draft decision.
3: Yeah, I want to bring in a caller, Nan in Santa Clara. Nan, go ahead. Hi um I work in healthcare right now
6: and like it's across the board understood that reproductive health is a right like there's still very progressive cities in California that are unable to provide these resources because of the lack of like funding and stuff so how can you expect states with pretty much like zero public funding for Healthcare to really meet like the demand now and if you're going to take us away are you going to give us an alternative such as like birth control teaching like sex teaching all this stuff in schools to educate the mass um, and I don't really see that coming and it's extremely hypocritical to impose this on us but if it were to happen in their own personal sphere I'm pretty sure things would be different and it's just It just seems so backwards to refer to resources from archaic times in the same line as like witchcraft and apply it to modern day. Like our nation, like quote unquote, tradition is consisting of racism, sexism, and classism. And to bring that back almost seems like a personal benefit and agenda. And like the most frustrating part of it is that the public polls, like the public does not want this to happen. They are advocating for abortion and reproductive rights. And these individuals who work, In the federal government, who work in the Supreme Court justice, whose job is to protect and advocate for the people's rights, it doesn't make any sense for them to do the complete opposite of it.
3: Yeah. All right. Thanks, Nan. We really appreciate your phone call. Um, You know, I want to talk about the other potential rights that that could be under attack next. But before we get there, I, I think it's important, Jay, to underline just the fact that this was not. It's not an accident that we're here. Right. This was a concerted political and legal strategy, um, which, of course, started after Roe, but has really continued over the past few decades. And I'm just curious, like, you know, it's about electing folks who were anti-abortion. It was about stacking the courts with jurists um, who are also anti-abortion. But there was a specific legal strategy here as well. Right. And it, and, and, and do you think that ultimately it is just about abortion or is it always been a kind of broader legal strategy?
4: Oh, it's definitely not just about abortion, although that would be hard, troubling enough if that if it were. Now, the caller is absolutely right. I mean, the, the pro-life movement is not pro-life, right, in any real way. If you were pro-life, you would want enough health care for any woman who needed it. You would want child care. You would want paid child leave, right? Like most civilized countries, you know, you would want to be so that women, especially single mothers, wouldn't have to choose between working and taking care of their new new children. There's a whole agenda that would be a really nice agenda if we were truly pro-life, right? This is just a forced birth movement. This is a control of women's bodies movement, and it's a patriarchy movement. And the same, so the, the right to privacy, which Aziza referred to earlier, which is the notion that there is this kind of personal zone beyond which the government cannot go, that's the same basis for not just the right to my marriage, same-sex marriage and marriage equality, uh, also the right to any same-sex activity. we maybe forget that, so- quote unquote, sodomy uh, was illegal in many states until it was overturned by the Supreme Court. The, the quote unquote, right to privacy is is underlies that. Even the right to use contraception and even the right that people of different ethnic groups, they would say different races, interracial marriage, even that rests on the right to privacy. And if you think about it, of course. I mean, why shouldn't the government re- regulate all of these things if it wants to? Well, the reason is that there's this notion of personal privacy and autonomy, and I would say sort of dignity and in, inside of these these fundamental rights in the Constitution. Yeah. But once that's taken away, uh, then we really get to see the full ambit of uh, what, this, what this campaign has always been about, uh, which has been about turning back the clock to a mythical time in which fundamentalist white fundamentalist Christians were the hegemonic group. Their values were the shared values. That's what it means make America great again. It, makes, it means return to the illusion of, let's say, 1950s America, in which a certain type of person uh, dominated uh the, the sort of dominated power and political power as well as culture uh in this country. Yeah.
3: We're talking about the political history of Roe v. Wade and abortion rights and the leaked draft opinion that looks uh, indicates that the court may be overturning it. We're talking with Jay Michelson, journalist and contributing writer at The Daily Beast and New York Magazine, as well as Professor Aziza Ahmed. And if you want to tell us what rights you're worried about uh, could be lost if Roe's overturned, how you're responding to this court ruling, uh, potential court ruling or what questions you have, you can give us a call at 866 733 That's 8667336786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. Uh, We're at KQED Forum. And you can email your questions to forum at kqed.org. Susan writes, uh, did Alito really include the fact that there's now a reduction in the stigma associated with unmarried mothers so we can now force them to go forward with an unwanted pregnancy? What kind of mind thinks that social stigma is the reason one would terminate a pregnancy? Uh, Professor Ahmed, can you respond to that? Because it really did strike me reading this, watching the oral arguments, because Amy Coney Barrett brought this up too, that they do seem to be making an argument that because it's not as stigmatized to have a child out of wedlock, that somehow a woman's body, you know, that 40 weeks is not an intrusion on somebody's sort of constitutional rights to be forced to do anything.
2: Right. And can you know that the, I think the irony of all that as well is that it's not as though if there was a stigma, it's not as though if we did treat women badly in society who were pregnant, this would have turned out any differently. You know, I, I'm not convinced that the court really cares um, how women are treated in their uh, communities to begin with. But yeah, I mean, this idea that it's it's just, you know, carrying a pregnancy to term just isn't really that big of a deal um, came out really clearly um, in the oral arguments because Amy Coney Barrett, I think, to the shock of many people suggested that basically having an abortion was the same as carrying a pregnancy to term and giving up the child, um, uh, you know, sort of using the protections of safe haven laws, which, you know, essentially allow you to leave your child at a fire station or in the hospital if you can't care for the child. And people, people, I think people were rightly shocked by this idea that um, one would equate the entire experience of pregnancy, the dangers of pregnancy with having an abortion, something that could essentially, um, both events could essentially change your financial stability, your financial precarity. And it's really worth mentioning that for some groups of women, like Black women, yeah. it is really dangerous in this country, um, especially depending on where you live, um, like in the state of Texas, um, to have a child. Um, maternal mortality rates and morbidity rates are really high. And you know it's a, a, a scary experience in this country to have a child if you're a Black woman, to get your voice heard in the clinical setting. This has been proven in studies over and over. So we have to think about that as well.
3: Yeah, and I want to hit more on that racial aspect, which is important as well as the gender one. Um, I'm Marisa Lagos and Fermina Kim today, we're talking about this week's leaked Supreme Court decision on Roe v. Wade um, and what might be next. Please give us a call if you want to tell us your concerns or questions. We're at 866 733 6786. You can get in touch on Twitter and Facebook at KQED Forum or email our, your questions to forum at kqed.org. I'm Marisa Lagos. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Marisa Lagos, and today for Mina Kim. We are talking about this week's leaked Roe v. Wade draft decision by Justice Alito um, and what a world would look like without that 50 year old court precedent uh, protecting a woman's right uh, to choose an abortion. I want to play a cut for um, y'all from. Governor Gavin Newsom, you know, a lot of uh, blue states are really working to shore up their abortion networks um, in anticipation of this ruling. And the governor spoke this week um, pretty forcefully at Planned Parenthood in Los Angeles about what he worries could happen next.
0: Don't think for a second. Don't think for a second. This is where they stop. And if you think it affects someone else over there, this is about you. I mean, if the right to privacy is not foundational, they're coming after you. They are. Fill in the blank. Who, who is you? It's us. It's all of us. Across a spectrum of issues. You think for a second same-sex marriage is safe in the United States of America? Give me a break.
3: And uh, Aziza Ahmed, uh, what's your take on this? I know Jay has, has spoken and, and written about uh, gay marriage, for example, as, as potentially uh, under sort of threat from this um, contraception. We talked about, you know, private sexual activity. Is that because all of those rulings were based in part on the same sort of underlying assumption of um, the 14th Amendment and this idea of equal protection?
2: Yeah, that's exactly right. So, you know, basically what um, Scalia and Thomas have been saying for uh, decades and many conservative um, uh, Supreme Court justices and as well as Supreme Court, I mean, conservative thought leaders, um, is essentially that any right that's not specifically found in the Constitution, um, it's not an enumerated right of the Constitution, essentially it is just when the court sort of declares something like that as a right, like the right to privacy, it's basically just the court doing politics, you know, and they should, the court's not supposed to be in the business of doing politics. They shouldn't be in the business of essentially taking a political position on behalf of the people. Those kinds of decisions should be left to the states. Um, And so you have to then go back and say, all right, well, what are all the cases that are linked to this right of privacy? That's that seems like it's about to be sort of written out of our um, constitutional uh, uh, doctrine and analysis. And um, it's, you know, it is gay marriage. It is um, rights associated with marriage and family. It is simply um, same sex sexual relationships like uh, um, Jay mentioned, you know, Lawrence v. Texas, which was only um, in 2003, you know, and a lot of, um, I think a lot of us remember pre, you know, the days pre 2003, um, and even, even where there wasn't, uh, that much enforcement of the laws, there was a, a cloud, you know, over, I think, uh, American society that 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 said to people, you know, and that signaled to LGBT people that like the sex you're having is essentially criminal. Um, And uh, all of that, all of that progress that we've made to build a society that's more sort of accepting and open is is basically on the chopping block.
3: Yeah, we're getting a ton of comments. So I want to get to some of these and questions. Um, uh, Jay, quickly, can you tell us the name of the book you mentioned about evangelical history? Again, a listener is asking. the
4: historian is named Randall Ballmer, uh, Balmer, B A L M E R, and he actually had an article in the Guardian last fall. If you don't want to go read the whole, several books he's written, uh, kind of summarizing that, and he links to his his longer work.
3: Okay, I'm going to bring in a caller just a sec, but I also wanted to have you, Jay, respond to this tweet. I understand the historical background and legal possibilities, but could these over the top predictions hurt Democrats' arguments? And I would just add the question, like and are we already seeing legal forces line up to do you know to challenge these cases um or like how are these predictions based on what we're already seeing or just the sort of broader context
4: oh it's no it's on what we're already seeing i'll, I'll put in one caveat uh, just obviously you know we want to be truthful about, you know, the threats that are there, but we also don't want to just exaggerate too much. This is a draft opinion. Uh, It does seem that at least Justice Kavanaugh, and obviously there's a huge irony here that it's Justice Kavanaugh who might be the moderate in favor of women's rights. Um, I'm just, that's... Yeah. But nonetheless, <laughs> just leave that
3: there. Yeah, <laughs> he has. I'm just gonna
4: leave that there. He, he does have a more moderate view uh, than Justice Alito that he's expressed at oral argument and in, and in some of his published writing as well. It's possible that we might have a slightly narrower final decision than this draft decision. So for example, Roe versus Wade could still be overturned. But all of the extra language that's in Justice Alito's draft about the right to privacy, that doesn't really need to be there. Uh, And it's possible that even if that opinion goes Justice Kavanaugh, certainly Chief Justice Roberts to conservatives, by the way, these are not liberal heroes, they may not join in that. So we may have a slightly narrower opinion uh, than the draft that we've that we've just gotten. Uh, that, that That is a possibility. Having said that, uh, several justices on the court have gone out of their way to question the marriage right. Uh, Justice Gorsuch and Justice Thomas uh, and Justice Alito have written in concurring and dissenting opinions, uh, first limiting uh, same-sex marriage, basically saying that, well, you can have marriage, but marriage doesn't have to be the same as straight Mm -hmm. marriage. So uh, there was a case uh, involving conditions on gay marriage that didn't exist for straight marriage. And do companies have to recognize your same-sex marriage? Well, maybe not because it's not the same as it doesn't have be the same as a straight marriage. So we've already seen incursions on the marriage right. Uh, And Justice Alito in the draft expressly mentioned Obergefell, which was the same-sex marriage decision, uh, as falling under this same mistaken constitutional interpretation that there might be some kind of right to privacy. So this is not, you know, uh, the- This isn't hyperbolic.
3: (laughs) We're not, you know, we're not
4: going crazy here. It's, It's written in the draft opinion, and it's been in other Supreme Court opinions as well.
3: Yeah. And I'm sure we are going to have plenty of time to unpack on forum and other KQED shows the politics, uh, uh, the the fallout of this. But I want to bring in um, Berkeley from Oakland with a question for our panel. Berkeley, go ahead. Yeah. Hi. Thank you so much. Um, So my understanding is that in order to bring
6: a legal case, you have to prove that you have standing. And I don't understand how anyone
3: could possibly have standing over what I do with my own body. Amazing question. Uh, Professor, you want to take that one?
2: Yeah, sure. So Yes, that's, (laughs) that's a really good question. And I think it kind of gets to the heart of bodily autonomy and privacy. I think states are looking for creative ways essentially to control women's bodies, control the bodies of people who need Um, abortions. And, you know, we see this in Texas, for example, where the state has basically granted standing to anyone who wants to sue an abortion provider for uh, doing an abortion before six weeks. Um, You know, we can see, you know, it's not the same issue as standing, but, you know, if we see criminal action um, prosecutions of women who tried to self-induce their abortion or to try to have abortions, you know, it's kind of giving the state the authority and power um over a person's body. In that case, you would have to defend yourself against the state essentially saying that you've tried to commit an illegal act. So, yeah, great question. And what and, about? You know,
3: yeah, also, I know some states are trying to create laws to prevent women from leaving to get an abortion in other states. That seems very shaky to me, but I'm not a lawyer. So can you yeah. also, yeah, respond to that?
2: Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, it's it's really complicated. And I think the current consensus among scholars who are thinking about how the criminal laws and these sort of what so-called travel bans um, are going to intersect is a bit unclear. Um, but right now, states are experimenting essentially with passing laws that say um, or, or writing laws that say that essentially a, a, a person can't leave um, the state and go get an abortion elsewhere because when they return, they'll be prosecuted. Alternatively, that they might try to go and get find the physician to prosecute or alternatively, that if a physician travels um, into a state to um, uh, to, uh, you know, do an abortion, that they could be prosecuted. It, it's we're, we're kind of in fuzzy territory here. There's a whole there's a whole range of laws um, and rules and uh, that basically suggest that um, states should cooperate. Um, there's ways that states could specifically say that they won't cooperate um, when it comes to uh, uh, prosecutions related to abortion. Connecticut has passed. A law uh, um, uh, like this one, um, the state of California, you know, is is putting protections into place for women who are coming here to seek abortions. I think the real thing to take away, though, is that while we are in this gray area, a lot of women are going to be prosecuted because we are at a we're kind of in a new and unprecedented moment where the right is really trying out everything in its most cruel fashion and. Um, I think it's just a matter of time, as we already saw in Texas, before a woman essentially gets prosecuted and they make a, ma- um, you know, her poor life is dragged through the system as we're all trying to figure out whether or not this is okay, whether or not it's constitutional or unconstitutional.
4: You know, and just, just for perspective, to add to that, that, uh, that excellent analysis... Four years or a few years ago, six years ago, when Donald Trump was running for president, uh, you know, he's kind of new to being pro-life because he wasn't, you know, he was he wasn't anti-abortion his whole life. So somebody asked him kind of a gotcha question, which is, well, would you prosecute women? Uh, for getting an abortion, because most of the laws are actually targeted toward doctors, toward abortion providers. So it was a bad talking point, like what you're supposed to say if you're anti-abortion is no, 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 we would never prosecute women. We only want to prosecute the doctors. But Donald Trump didn't know that. So he said, well, I guess guess we would prosecute women. And there was a huge blowback against Mm -hmm. that. That was only six years ago. And now, as Aziza just said, that's actually happening. Now there are laws which would actually target women. So in just the span of, of six years, like a really short period of time, we moved from something being too outrageous, even for the anti-abortion right to say, to something that's actually in law.
3: And I just mm-hmm. have to underscore, I mean, the idea of telling a woman that she cannot leave her home state to go do really anything she wants somewhere else is, just blows my mind. I, I- I just I'm going to leave that there Um, Robin writes anti-abortion proponents seem to claim there is a religious rationale but I've read the Bible and it never refers to abortion the only reference in Genesis indirectly indicates that a fetus if killed during a fight in which the pregnant woman is injured is treated as property and a fine must be paid as damages just going to leave that one there. Well, that's
4: actually, that is, uh, I can put my rabbi on for a moment. Uh, Not only is abortion itself not mentioned, but that is actually a really important biblical verse because the Bible never talks about this issue, but it does have exactly, it was, that's actually in a, in, I think Leviticus, not Genesis, but that, that, that text is exactly correct. So there is a, there's a case where there's like, if there's a, so if somebody in, in the Old Testament, there is capital punishment. Uh, if somebody killed someone, they were supposed to be put to death. That was never actually done in practice, but that was what's in the, the letter of the law. So if a, if a fetus were a human life and somebody, God forbid, killed a pregnant woman, that so or killed the fetus rather so attack the pregnant woman killed the fetus that would be murder right and that should be that should be punished as murder but in fact the biblical text says it's not punished as murder which means that it's not a human life which means that again this is like a thread of a thread of a thread it seems like a very fine point but because the bible never talks about any of these issues which you would think if this was important it might get a mention, right? Never gets a mention. The one time it sort of does talk about it is on the other side that this is not a human life. It may be a potential human life. It may be something like Aziza said at the top, you know, there have been this has been a contested issue uh, with some voices being heard and others not. It's contested, right? This is back and forth. So the one little sliver of of religious teaching on this is on the opposite side of where religious conservatives find themselves today.
3: You are listening to Forum. I'm Marisa Lagos, and for Kim. We're talking about the draft leak SCOTUS decision um, with Jay Michelson, journalist and contributing writer at The Daily Beast and New York Magazine, and Aziza Ahmed, professor of law at UC Irvine Law School. We have some other comments coming in. Jesse writes, it blows my mind to hear that people say life matters and in the same breath discount homelessness, turn people away at the border, lock people up for minor drug offenses and dictate who a person wants to be. The loudest are those who claim to be Christian, but that is not how I was taught to be Christ-like." Amy wants to know if life starts at at conception, then when does child support start? Would it start immediately when a woman found out she was pregnant? Um, Aziza, this, I think, you know, is a legitimate question, but also gets to some of these sort of critiques that there's not actually as much respect once a baby is born for supporting that life.
2: Right. Yeah, exactly. I mean, if we we know that, you know, many mothers in this country, many single mothers in this country, many of whom you know are black and Latina who are poor, who are struggling, um, get virtually no support from the government um, and families are have suffered through this pandemic. People, you know, we don't support mothers and we don't support children in this country. Um, and it's uh it's a um it's shocking to think that we that someone can actually you know that conservatives can actually even try to make the claim that they, what who they care about is children you know given the other um types of laws that are supported by conservatives at this moment uh you know and i i think you know the question also gets to something else which is really um coming down the pike too if, if this if this um, decision does come to fruition, which is that, you know, there are a lot of people who um, make embryos um, through IVF and other assisted reproductive technologies. And, you know, if we deem, um, you know, that a, a if we decide that, um, you know, a child, um, you know, that a life begins prior to um, uh, basically at fertilization or at conception, then, you know, we're basically having to come up with a whole new scheme for how we're going to think about issues like assisted reproduction. And what we're going to do with all the embryos that are currently in freezers all over the country um, that have been produced in this process. And you know, it, it, how will it deal with wills and trusts? You know, who will who will get inheritance? Um, uh, how do we think about it? Do we need to include those embryos when we think about our next of kin? I mean, it's a it, it's opening the door to a huge Pandora's box of uh, complicated legal issues um, that I'm not sure we're ready to deal with. Yeah, definitely. I want to bring
3: in another caller, um, Paige from Sonoma. Go ahead, Paige.
6: Hi there. Uh, My comment is, I know going to sound a little over the top, but my concern is for women who sadly go through miscarriages or lose their uh, child that way. I feel like this concept of persecuting uh, the women or the doctors, the providers, at what point is this finger pointing going to become that, well, you had a miscarriage, but I saw you had a glass of wine. Maybe you caused that miscarriage. And therefore, at what point is it that you're, I think it's a fine line between, okay, my body can choose to have an abortion. My, my brain cannot choose. To uh, have
3: Paige, abortion. thank you for the call. And this isn't actually an extreme concern because we've seen two women in recent years prosecuted in California for this. Um, who wants to take that one?
2: Well, I I can, you know, I'll just say that we have seen, you know, for a very long time, and there was a real uptick of this um, in, in the 1980s. Um, the prosecution of women for their behaviors during pregnancy. Um, we really zoned in in the 1980s on women who were using drugs. It was part of the war on drugs. It was a racialized attack on, you know, poor women. And um, we see a racist attack on poor women. And we see, um, we saw it continue during um, the opioid crisis as well. That women were essentially being prosecuted prosecuted for what you could call their behaviors during pregnancy and it is interesting to think about the fact that um you know we haven't had of course i'm sure case very many cases exist but we haven't had the same kind of moral outrage at women having a glass of wine during pregnancy i think it says something about the class and race dynamics of you know who has a glass of wine at dinner versus um uh, people um, who are dealing with um, communities who are dealing with sort of bigger um, issues of of addiction um, but you know i I um, Yeah, we, we've seen this for a long time. It's going to keep happening. Um, you know, we're going to see prosecutions for people who claim they've had miscarriages and stillbirths and instead, um, this, and the state's accusing them of having self-induced um, uh, yeah, it's it's happening now, and and this is only going to make it worse.
3: All right. I, we only have like a minute left, but Joan writes in that she thinks our guest comment about the pro-life movement being primarily about the patriarchy controlling women's bodies is misguided that a large component of the pro-life movement is women who feel it's unethical to take the life of an unborn child um, and that claiming most pro-lifers are religious fanatics and white men bent on propping up the patriarchy is inaccurate and damaging to the prospect of ever coming to an agreement. Jay, do you have like 10 seconds to respond?
4: I think it's perfectly fine to have a religious view about abortion. What's not perfectly fine is using the instruments of the state and the carceral state and power to force other women, to force women to obey that decision.
3: Yeah, and just underscoring that supporting abortion rights doesn't mean you yourself love the idea of abortion. All right, we're going to have to leave it there. We have been talking about how we got here with Roe v. Wade and what might happen next. I want to thank our guests, Jay Michelson, journalist and contributing writer at The Daily Beast and New York Magazine. He's also a rabbi. And Aziza Ahmed, professor of law at UC Irvine Law School. Thank you so much to you both. Thank you. You have been listening to Forum. I'm Marisa Lagos and Fermina Kim. See you tomorrow.